Hello, folks, and welcome to the 49th episode of the Startup Blender podcast. My name is Ucha, and our guest today is Brett Martin from the US. Brett is a co-founder of Kumospace, which is the top provider of digital offices connecting distributed teams across the globe. Having raised $24 million in funding from Lightspeed, their vision is to make connecting online more human and more fun. In addition to building this company, Brett is also a general partner at Charge Ventures. With 60-plus portfolio companies in hand, he invests in cross-sector startups in pre-seed and seed rounds. As you can see, Brett is one of those people who is currently trying out both hats, founder and VC, which made our conversation in this episode very interesting. We talked about his story of getting into the startup world, vision of Kumo Space, the future of remote work, and his experience as a venture capitalist. Enjoy! Welcome everybody to the Startup Blender, the podcast about startup life and some other stuff. Hello, Brett. Thank you very much for coming to the episode. It's great to have you here. Uh, how are you? How's your day going? Howdy. Ucha, pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, other than being rainy, life is good here in New York City. That's amazing. But to get listeners up to speed, tell us about you. Like, who are you? What you do? So, well, I um, wear a few hats. I am the co-founder and president of Kumo Space, which is a Lightspeed Ventures Series A funded um, virtual office. Basically, it's a unified communications platform for remote and distributed teams so they can, uh, you know, create culture, collaborate quickly and uh, be accountable to each other wherever they're working. And then I also am the um, co-founder and a GP at Charge Ventures, which is a Brooklyn-based premium pre-seed venture capital. We've got on our third fund, got 75 portfolio companies, and uh, we write really anywhere from $250 to $1 million checks in the companies just getting off the ground, soft, focused on kind of a future of work, uh, greater economies, and um, uh, artificial intelligence. And, and that's because I also, my third hat is that I am a adjunct uh, professor at Columbia Business School and Engineering Schools where I teach uh, machine learning and data science. That's amazing. That's amazing to hear. And I really can't wait to dive all in and ask you all about your experiences. Uh, but first, before we get into all of those, um, you know, you as a founder at Kumo Space and uh, so on, tell us about uh, how did you get into the whole startup world? What were your first steps? Well, I was always into startups and, you know, entrepreneurship. I think I kind of came, my dad was sort of pretty entrepreneurial, always had his own businesses. Um, and then, you know, I went to, went to college and studied economics, actually won the business plan competition. We built a collapsible snowboard when I was uh, in college and, and then, um, you know, came out of school and went straight down and went into finance, which is what most people did when I graduated in 2004. And I um, worked at an investment bank covering healthcare services. But I remember I was spending all my time uh, over at the internet, the uh, technology guys' desks. And, uh, you know, we were like looking at new technology. I remember when YouTube got bought by Google for a billion dollars. That was like a massive transaction. And, um, you know, that's what I knew I wanted to do. So I did um, I kind of pivoted into tech via this thing called a Fulbright scholarship, which um, I studied in um, 
Zabokone in Milan. We, um, I joined up with this guy, Thanos Papa Dimitriou. We studied early stage technology ventures. And actually, I, what I did was I called 100 um, founder CEOs of publicly traded uh, venture backed companies uh, and uh, asked them you know, about their work and, and interviewed them. And that was the basis of uh, some research I did for um, the Harvard Business Review. And uh, that was my pivot into tech was, uh, you know, that scholarship. And then I came back and I've been building or investing in tech ever since. Wow, that's very interesting. So it all started from collapsible snowboards. So how, like, what, so what's the idea? <laughs> very interesting. Well, it, well, it's funny. I'm I'm literally looking um, for a new, it's called a split board now. Um, actually, it splits down the middle into two skis, so you can, uh, you know, hike up the hill with it, and then you can snowboard down. So yeah, we built an early prototype. If I could take up the video of it, that would be amazing. Uh, that was in, you know, two thousand one. Yeah, definitely send me a video. Originally, I'm from Georgia, and we have a lot of mountains, and um, yeah, snowboarding and skiing is a big thing there. So. <laughs> We'd be very interested this, to see. This is a video from 2001, so it's probably like a three-second clip, and it's you know super hyper pixelated. Even if I could find it, I don't think it would be that interesting yeah. for anyone. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, but then uh, fast forward today, you are a co-founder and CEO of Kumo Space. So tell us more about that. What do you guys do, and what's your what's your vision with the company? Yeah, well, I'm actually not the CEO. So the CEO of Kumo Space is uh, my good friend uh, Yang Mao who um I've done we've done three startups together um he he uh you know is in the hot seat for this one we actually just went to his uh, daughter's third birthday yesterday um and uh you know the vision of Kumo Space is um you know if you run a remote or distributed team you know your team is sort of siloed right each everyone's kind of doing their own thing you don't have that office as a physical nexus for everyone to be in the same place and kind of connect and you know forms that glue and you, know, you can tap people on the shoulder and you can you know sort of build camaraderie there and you can kind of be accountable to the rest of your team and your you know even managers can be accountable to the team to you know mentor people um so we solve that problem by creating kind of a virtual space that everyone wakes up and when they would get up at nine and you start work, you sign into Kumo space, you're there, you're kind of, you are your video. You can, um, you know, people can tap you on the shoulder in virtual space and get a quick answer. And you can kind of build a, the space and instead of zoom where everything looks the same, no matter what call it is, it's kind of commoditizing Kumo space yeah, and let you personalize it to your, um, you know, feel more like your company and, uh, you know, make it just more human. So that, that's the general idea is kind of just a more human way of working remotely. And it doesn't suffer from the same sort of silos and fragmentation that, um, uh, that normal remote work does. So we kind of bundle essentially all the other tools that you'd use for remote work. So we kind of combine Zoom and Slack and Loom and, Fireflies, which is a you know no ticking app, you kind of put it all into one, so uh, it's easier. All your stuff's in one place, and it's also cheaper. So that's another kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that's very interesting, and uh, I've never heard of this kind of concept that sort of combines everything, all of these big apps that we have after pandemic. <laughs> you know, because the remote work is a thing became mainstream uh, after 2020. Which brings me to the next question. I think uh, I saw that you guys started this Kumo space in 2020 uh, during pandemic. So my question is, what were the challenges to build a startup 
in such you know chaotic times yeah i mean it definitely was the res a response to the pandemic right we you know yeah. i was on doing venture capital kind of not really enjoying it it was just all an endless zoom calls um which took a little bit of the joy out of it for me and i was thinking wow you know there has to be something better than just endless zoom and so i you know pitched yang my co-founder um i said you know what if it was more like video games and he was is a big gamer and he came back two weeks later with a prototype and you know mm. you see a lot of software as the vc but you know with consumer software rarely do you say oh wow this could be really different and we immediately saw just at the interaction of having multiple people in the same virtual space sort of it mirrored a lot of real life behaviors right like a conference or an office or a classroom or a house party. And so we were like, wow, that we've never seen that sort of interaction online before. And instantly it felt different. So, um, you know, we were off to the races. I think he's prototyped that in May and then we launched in August and then it just you know, took off from then. I mean, I think, I guess that was maybe one advantage is that we were always remote and we were building software for remote interactions. So, you know, we probably have some advantage over folks that were doing something completely unrelated. Uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to build a really great remote company and, you know, what, what to do. But uh, honestly, even we, you know, suffer from the challenges of, of building remote and have had to, you know, we're just trying when we have a problem, we just say, okay, how do we fix this with software and build it in the Kumo space? So in a sense, we're just dog feeding, fooding our own product the whole time. Absolutely. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. If you guys already had this uh, remote experience, you were sort of ahead of the game. Uh, but now, uh, well, you raised the uh, 24 million Series A. So, you know, th things are going <laughs> good. Uh, but to uh, talk about like a little bit about the future, uh, what are the future objectives that you have with this company, considering the time we have right now? I mean, it's like economic downturn, you know, companies, startups especially, uh, they are struggling to raise money and, uh, you know, we see layoffs everywhere. Um, so what are your objectives with the company? Yeah, I think it's interesting, at least in the U.S., um, you know, 2023 was kind of the year of return to office. Everyone was trying to get everyone back into the office. And uh, going into 2024, I think um, people, the, the fantasy of the return to office, I think folks are finally getting rid of. That, you know, occupancy, commercial occupancy is stuck below 50%. No one's going back. People don't want to go back. And so I think 2024 is the year where folks will start realizing, okay, this is the new reality you know maybe we're going to get folks in two or three days a week and it's not going to be all of them and you know the best way to get everyone together in that case is some sort of virtual technology and um you know also all these budget cuts and everyone's trying to uh, startups are trying to prolong their runway and so i think they're going to realize wow you know we can get all the benefits of a physical space but we can get it you know at a tenth the cost yeah. Uh, you know, virtually, and we can get all these things that we don't even get, right? You know, we get all these tools bundled together, all your data in one place, which being in a physical office actually doesn't solve that. Um, and so we think 2024 is the year where people will really start to look for, you know, dedicated purpose-built technologies 
uh, for sort of this, you know, hybrid future that we're going to live in, uh, rather than trying to retrofit, you know, tools that were built before remote work was really a big thing, right? If you think about it, you know, Zoom and Slack, they weren't built for, you know, fully distributed companies. They were built still thinking everyone was going to be sitting in the office. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, I think people are finding it a wise up and, and build and get purpose-built tools this next year. Yeah, absolutely. I think that what you said makes a lot of sense though. Like in 2023, companies will try to push, uh, also in Europe, uh, I'm sure it's not the case in only in US that um, sort of try to push everybody back, which I mean, you know, digital nomad life is fun for everybody <laughs> who doesn't like to go and work from Lisbon where there is like a good food, a good weather <laughs> and a vibrant digital nomad community. But now suddenly company tells you to come back I think exactly, yeah, I agree with the point that um, companies will realize that, all right, this is the new normal now, from now on, uh, for the, you know, at least foreseeable future. Uh, and yeah, that this kind of uh, tool is going to be useful. So um, yeah, very interested to see how everything will develop in that sense. <laughs> I, think, I think people were surprised that, you know, I think like the environment, was bad there were tons of layoffs last year last year and i think companies thought okay you know particularly for a big brand you know amazon or google or apple or whatever you know we're just going to call people back and they're just going to kowtow put their tail between their legs and come back and i think they were surprised that um you know the best talent the talent that can get a job anywhere you know wasn't so quick to just come back to the office because that's the way it was there are there you know the the best people are asking well why do i need to come back i get all of my stuff done you know i can work wherever i want like i'm going to do what i want and so i think companies sort of have to deal with that reality and and just be more flexible right like some people do want to work in the office um most don't uh most want to have some flexibility right at least for a couple days a week and then the question is are you just going to have no connectivity, you know, even if you're a hybrid or should you still have some tool that helps you stay connected, even, you know, for the two or three days a week, you're not all in the office together. Um, so we'll see how it goes, but uh, it's starting off. Uh, looks, look, we're, we're feeling optimistic going into the year. Absolutely. Yeah. And you have all the data to prove that. So yeah. <laughs> Great. Oh yeah. Um, tens of tens of thousands of companies sitting in Kumo space for millions of hours every month. That's amazing. Uh, great. Uh, but let's now let's talk about your the other side of your professional life, which is the VC world. Mm, so how did you how did you get into the world, the VC world? Especially, I'm asking this question because we know how hard it is to sort of get into that, you know, in the specific like a community of VCs. And uh, I know that many founders are not really choosing this path, like to become a VC, at least in Europe. Uh, I mean, from what I've seen, it's like that. So, why why did you decide to take this path, and you know how, how did this come up? Yeah, I mean, I think I was always interested in venture capital. My roommate from college, this guy Jordan Cooper, who runs a venture capital fund mm-hmm. uh, called Pace Capital. He, you know, he had, he was from New York and kind of had exposure to investing. Um, and knew of this career path called venture capital. And I always thought, well, that that sounds pretty cool. Um, and then after, you know, being an investment bank, I realized it's really more of a sales job. Um, and I wanted to be closer 
to the building, you know, less finance and, and more building. And so I felt like, you know, venture was a great way of doing that. And um, I had worked at some venture capital funds in New York, but ultimately, you know, started my own, I, I think. Um, but when I started that, it wasn't like I was coming from Sequoia or, uh, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, right? And, and, you know, it wasn't like it was such an obvious um, group, you know, person to bet on. So, you know, when I started with my partner, Chris Hibachi, um, you know, we did it, I think the way most entrepreneurs would attack the problem is that we raised a little bit of money. We built a proof of concept. We invested in, you know, 24 companies out of our first little angel fund, got proved access to experienced entrepreneurs and repeat founders and got into some good deals and put up some numbers and then used that traction to go raise more capital for our second fund. So I think our path was not so different than any, you know, anyone could take the same path. Uh, all it just took was some hustle. Nice. And uh, what's the, uh, so you mentioned you started your venture fund, which is uh, charge charge ventures. Uh, so what's the focus for char charge ventures? I understand you uh, uh, invest in more like a pre-seed seed round startups, but what kind of startups are they? Yeah, we uh, we call it, you know, premium pre-seed venture capital based out of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we write the first kind of 250 to a million dollar check for companies just getting off the ground. Um, so in New York, that's, you know, in the Valley, maybe it's two brilliant you know stanford guys uh from uh, working out of a garage and you know new york it's uh you know two brilliant gals from uh columbia who are working out of an, uh, an apartment in uh you know the flatiron district so the, that's the new york equivalent and uh we like to just be the first institutional check to you know get behind folks and um that's a mix of repeat founders uh and but also first-time founders that have you know shown the ability to get the ball rolling and you know build traction even without kind of an institutional you know without an institutional pedigree or um you know they didn't have to work at uber as long as they're uh you know getting putting up numbers and getting customers you know that's really what we care about right but uh what are the uh like uh, industries that those startups are working in now? like are there more like SaaS or e-commerce yeah well, you know, it's it's evolved over the years. I think we've gotten more and more narrow and more and more specific about what we like to invest in. I mean, at this point, I, you know, I'd say we invest in software companies that focus on consumer, prosumer, and, you know, PLG, um, you know, models. Um, in terms of, you know, industry focus, I think we like, like that entrepreneurship uh, angle. So we do a lot of creator economy investments. Mm -hmm. We view sort of, creators, influencers as the sort of, you know, that is the entrepreneur of, uh, you know, the 20, 2020s. Um, so we invest in companies like Grin, which is CRM for influencer marketing, or Norby, which is kind of like a HubSpot marketing suite for um, influencers, or a company called Slate, which is, um, you know, kind of a social media management tool for brands uh, to create on-brand, on-time content. So uh, a lot of companies in that space, um, like I said, you know, we do uh artificial intelligence because we um like I, I teach at columbia so we've always been interested in data data infrastructure companies we invest in a company called electric ai which is um you know provides you it services over the cloud um and then they you know automate a bunch of things that 
that humans used to have to do. Um, we also invested in kind of a company called Kuma Space, which, you know, we uh, incubated that at charge. So a lot of future of work things, you know, sort of prosumer tools for people to be more productive and get their jobs done. Um, and then finally, we'll, uh, crypto is treated as well. We've invested in a bunch of uh, companies in, in, the, in the Web3 space, building infrastructure, infrastructure um, one's called Bison Trails, which uh, we sold to Coinbase, and that was a huge win. I mean, honestly, um, yeah. the founders of that, uh, Jill Luz and Aaron, uh, were just, you know, they're just amazing serial founders. Honestly, we're just lucky to be a part of it. So, uh, yeah, those are the spaces we spend most of our time. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, and you mentioned very, yeah, very interesting thing that, uh, uh, so creators of today are like, uh, you know, founders back in the day we used to have, I mean, everybody was used to, I think, I guess some sometime after like 2010s, everybody was of like a founder of something, something. And now everybody's like a creator, a YouTuber, a podcaster, just like me. <laughs> I'm trying to create something in yeah, an online. We space. would love to provide you tools to do your job. Yeah. Yep. But uh, so you being in the startup world for so long, what are the parallels that you see between those two, like creators right now being entrepreneurial and trying to do all these different things to, you know, make money online somehow and get their word out? And founders back then who were endlessly trying to come up with solutions and raise funds. Yeah. I've always slightly seen a parallel between artists and entrepreneurs, right? Like if you think about artists, right, they're, they're, you know, creating something from nothing. They have to build, you know, product and distribution and get in front of people and, you know, raise, uh, you know, capital, get, you know, patrons that help them, you know, sponsor, sponsor their work. So I feel like it's always been a parallel. Um, and if you think of, um, you know, creators, you know, content creators, they're, they're just doing the same thing, right? They're creating product, they're hustling, they're getting it out, they're trying to get distribution. They, they are kind of the, you know, small business in an entertainment economy. Um, and so, yeah, we just love that sort of entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, we love to invest in technology that, that foster that. Um, so, you know, that, that's our main interest. Uh, really, we also just, um, think you know more and more commerce and business is going to be done on these kind of large platforms and so we just want to be selling the picks and shovels uh into that ecosystem that's amazing to hear uh uh and now uh, my question is so you as a founder what's like because like as you know as founder we all know what are the challenges that you have to go through to and bring the company to where it is now what do you think are the advantages that it gives you as a vc i mean i i guess you understand other founders a little bit more it's easier for other founders to pitch ideas to you because of your uh, background um, as a founder so do you think that that's something that helps you to invest make better investment decisions as a vc or you know, it would be better if you were just <laughs> just mm, have that. I think I think it, it definitely makes me better at supporting my portfolio companies, right? Like yeah. I can give them very hands-on tactical advice around here's a here's a contract lawyer that we use, or here's a um, 
you know, playbook that we use for doing influencer marketing or, you know, SEO, or here's how to build, you know, your sales organization, or here's how to set up your, you know, incentive plan for your, your sales team, right? I mean, you know, my hands are dirty. I'm, I'm literally in the middle of doing it. So I can give, I think, help my investments be a bit around the corner. I call it kind of like a peer plus, you know, we're, we're, we're peer, but we're just a little bit farther down the road. And I think that's useful for folks. Um, in terms of picking investments, you know, I think that's a slightly different skill. I think, you know, venture is like understanding what makes for a good business. And that helps from just having seen a bunch of, uh, you know, different investments in different spaces and seeing what works and, and, and seeing, seeing what doesn't. So um, I think venture helps me be a better, you know, pick better business models <laughs> to start with. Wow. Very interesting. Uh, and finally, yeah, you mentioned you are an adjunct professor. Uh, so tell us about your everyday life as adjunct professor, sharing your experience to many, many students who I guess want to, you know, start their own thing and become founders one day. Uh, how, how's the experience? I I mean, yeah, I just like, I like being around young people. I like the energy. I like people, the optimism. Um, the class I'm teaching right now is um, at Columbia. It's a, it's called, um, analytics in action. So it's basically an applied data science and that analytics class where we pull in eight big companies. So anywhere from like Fortune 100 to kind of fast growing startups, they come in, they bring a, a problem that they want solved. You know, maybe it's we have churn or we have too many prospects and we don't know which ones to focus on or, oh, we want to build a automate our email outreach for our BDRs, you know, using, um, you know, LLMs. Uh, all over the board and they bring a data set sort of proprietary data to their business. And and then what we do is we staff them with teams of half MBAs and half engineers. And then we basically send them off and, um, you know, help them basically run eight data science projects every uh, fall semester with all these companies. And um, yeah, hopefully, you know, I think it's useful to that. We do an NPS score. I think we're, we're uh, over, 80% for our MPS uh, with the company. So I think we're adding some value there. Um, and then, you know, it's a way for students to get sort of really hands-on, um, you know, experience at a company. And so I, I really like that. I think it's fun. It's a nice fusion of my work and, uh, you know, th what the students need. And um, yeah, we're always looking for companies. So if there's any uh, kind of, we've, we found that Series B is probably the sweet spot, Series B and beyond. Uh, if there's any companies listening to this that want to get involved, uh, definitely let me know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's the, very interesting, you know, angle to your life too. Uh, you know, being VC founder and, you know, uh, being around young people um, as an engineering professor. Uh, but speaking of that, uh, our final question uh, that we ask to everybody is, uh, so what would be your advice uh, to... Uh, young people uh, who have their own ideas and want to get started, uh, you know, executing it, become founders uh, and start their own startup. Uh, what would be your advice to these people? How should they approach the process? To get started, uh, that's just putting one foot in front of the other, you know, setting small goals. I, uh, I'll, I'll tell a story with, one of my more recent investments is this guy, Ryan Shank. He, um, 
is founding this company called Sharewillow, which is basically a profit sharing software for um, for profitable small businesses, you know, folks that aren't raising venture capital, but want to kind of incentivize their team to, you know, work toward the overall success of the company. And um, I've learned so much from this guy already. He's, he's so fast to getting to work. You know, he's got a framework for, he's got his metrics up and running, you know, in two months, he's got his KPIs, even from a very small base, he's saying, okay, how many people am I getting to my website? How many people are, you know, clicking and, Sign, you know, signing up and, you know, setting up a demo. How many, you know, customers am I getting just from day one? And I think when you're starting, you look at all these big fancy startups and unicorns and making millions of dollars and it's so intimidating and you kind of, you don't even want to, like, you know, your numbers, you know, you have a dozen people come to your website today and that feels so small that it's not even worth looking at. But that's actually kind of such a golden time when you don't have so much noise, you only have a few customers that you can really focus in on and spend quality time with. And I think a lot of times people, they aggregate these numbers and they're looking at their top line so much and they're not de-aggregating and just looking at every individual customer and really talking to them and really learning about them. And that's just such a magic time. And you're going to do so much learning so much faster before you start getting, you know, disintermediated by your employees and by, you know, their employees and by contractors. And, you know, it's hard, you know, piloting by numbers. Uh, you know, once you're running a big company, it's it's kind of like being running a jumbo jet, right? You're not looking out the window anymore. You're just only using your dashboards. But I think that, you know, in the very beginning, when you are just metal on the, you know, bare metal, directly talking to customers as the founder, that's just such a magic time and you'll never learn faster than that. So, um, you know, don't rush to get out of it. Really spend as much time there as you need until you really truly have product market fit. And then that's when it's time to, you know, start scaling up your business. And, you know, the nice part about that is it doesn't take that much capital in the, in the very beginning. So that'd be my advice. Stay close to the metal. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that so much. Like, uh, you know, time in the beginning, that's exactly how you said, like, when you have no noise, that's the best time to experiment, sort of, and, um, you know, do whatever. <laughs> and then, yeah, that's the best time to find your product market fit. Such a pleasure, Usha. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for being a guest. Uh, I want to wish you a best of luck uh, in your, you know, both... <laughs> career paths uh, as a VC and as a founder of Como Spaces. Um, I think it was very interesting to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Follow us on your favorite social media and check out the next episode. Ta-da!